Hello, everyone. Uh, we are continuing in our brief podcast-only series on the book of Jonah that is a reworked and tightened-up version of what I taught this past spring on Sunday evenings. And the purpose of the series was to prepare us historically and literarily for the book of Daniel, a book which is also about a prophet set apart by God, used to prepare a place for the exiled Judah, the exiled house of David, in the great city and empire of Babylon. Now, as we will see this fall in a very similar way to Jonah, Daniel's life is a living symbol of God's people in the wilderness, really in the chaotic seas of Gentile Babylon, and how God used Daniel, and in turn his people, to prepare the way of the Messiah that would arrive some 500 years later. Last week, we took up chapter 2 of Jonah and compared Jonah's story against Joseph of Genesis' story and how those connections give meaning and depth not only to Jonah but to Jesus' own story as well. Well, this week we come to chapter 3 and the conversion of Nineveh. Jonah 3.1 says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. So Jonah, after his death and resurrection by way of the sea and the great fish, was put back upon the dry land for the purpose of speaking God's word to the nations, in particular Nineveh. So just as Noah was put back onto dry land and received the command, initially given to Adam to have dominion over the creation and to be fruitful and multiply with the added commandment for capital punishment for murder, which gives us some indication that Noah functioned like a king, but I digress. Uh, Anyway, so to Jonah, though clearly not a king, is put back into the land of the living and received God's word again. This is incredibly gracious on God's part and is indicative of his refusal to give up on the covenant he made with his people in the role he gave Israel to be a light to the world. So whereas Israel had given up on the covenant for other gods, rejecting God. God himself had not done that. It's also indicative of how God refused to give up on his created order and his intentions for humanity. Humanities are to live by the word of God, and here a repentant Jonah finally does just that. In verse 2, God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, the message that I tell you. Initially, when we read about the details included in verses 4 and 5, we think that the reason God calls Nineveh the great city was because of its size. And while it is true that it was a large city for its times, I mean three days' journey to walk across all of it, that's only partially what's in view. In Genesis 10, verses 8 through 12, we read about Nimrod, a descendant of the cursed lineage of Ham, who was... The first on the earth to be a mighty man, it says. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and he founded two great city-states that would become two of the first world empires, Babel, that is Babylon, and Nineveh, the great city as it is described in Genesis 10. I spent probably too much time on what all that meant this past spring, but in summary, it's enough to know that Nimrod, whose name means we will rebel, was not merely a hunter as we think of hunters, but rather, as his name indicates, he was attempting to restart what was lost with the flood of Genesis 6. Genesis 10 links Nimrod with the Nephilim, or the Gabor, 
the offspring of the sons of God and human women. And the cities he founded, in turn, were unified in their open rejection of God. After all, Babylon means the gate of heaven or the gate of the gods, and it's clearly not the true God, Yahweh Elohim. So Nimrod is very much like Lamech of Genesis 4, writ large. Now, Nineveh itself was a four-city complex that included Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kala, and Rezin that all kind of ran together. It's like how we refer to Atlanta as one city, even as it is multiple towns that are all linked together. That said, what made Nineveh the great city was not so much its size as it was how great its sin and rebellion against God was. So like the description of humanity in Genesis 6, so too was Nineveh set on wickedness and violence perpetually, and really proudly so, very much like Nimrod, its founder. Verse 4 tells us that Jonah arrived and began to go into the city and went a day's journey. So I think we can assume he went a third of the way in, maybe reaching the center of the capital, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Because of this brief message, and this is most likely a summary, but maybe not, some modern commentators assume Jonah did not preach what God told him to preach. That is, they assume he gave a shortened kind of fire and brimstone message out of his hatred for the Assyrians, refusing to mention God's grace and kindness as if Jonah was like an angry street preacher yelling, you're going to burn. And if you've ever encountered such a street preacher, there was one that was very prominent in Chattanooga where I was growing up. Well, it's clear that the person is not actually interested in anyone turning to God and actually probably wants his audience to burn. But nothing about the text suggests that Jonah, again, disobeyed God and preached a bad word And God himself certainly does not seem upset at the content of what Jonah preached. So I think it is safe to assume, after all of this, after everything Jonah encountered on the sea and in the belly of the great fish, that he was not very eager to disregard or uh, derivate from what God told him to say. So I think this, this message is exactly what God told him to say. I think what Jonah preached in Chapter 3, verse 4 is in accordance with what God told him to preach in 1 2. Go to the great city and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So, while this may be a summary of what Jonah preached, but again, maybe not, I think Jonah called out exactly the terms or the meaning or the message of what God told him to say. The assumption of some commentators is that it doesn't fit with what they think of as a gospel presentation. So there is no God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life in that message. It's rather, listen, 40 days and you will be overthrown. And of course, if the model for proclamation is based on 20 and 21st century revivals and say roadside billboards, well, they might have a point. But the model for the prophet is always to hear the word of God and in turn to say what he says. And this is the word God gave to Jonah, and clearly it was very effective. Now, as an aside, because we live in the aftermath of the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost, we have come to expect uh, more teaching and explanation accompanying the announcement of God's kingdom arriving in Jesus Christ. But even in the Gospels, 
And I'll be talking about this this Sunday. When the twelve were first sent out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God, that's Luke chapter 9, we don't find them teaching anything. We see them rather preaching a simple message given to them by Jesus that was accompanied by healing and exorcisms. The only one who teaches in the gospels is Jesus. It is not until after Pentecost and the giving of the Spirit that we see the twelve preaching and teaching in a style that we have come to think of as normative. So Jonah's message is not unlike the proclamation of John the Baptist, who called on Israel to repent at the coming of the Messiah. That said, Jonah's message speaks directly to the king of Nineveh, who most likely was thought of, at least in somewhat semi-divine terms, as in, you have been a wicked ruler of men, O king, and the true God is going to replace you with another ruler, and you and your kingdom will be overthrown. Now, in the case of Assyria, this is what eventually happened by way of the Babylonians sometime after this, and they were later warned that this judgment was coming by way of the prophets Amos and Habakkuk. So clearly, as we know what happens, they believed, but then later they committed apostasy. The same thing happened later with King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in Daniel chapter 4 and would later happen to Babylon itself in Daniel chapter 5 at the hand of the Persians. That God would reach out to warn Nineveh is an act of kindness and implies that God wanted the Assyrians to turn to him and find life. Otherwise, why send a prophet? Why send Jonah? I mean, just destroy the Assyrians and be done with it like God had done with Sodom and Gomorrah. But because God sent a message of judgment does not mean that it was not a gospel presentation of sorts. I mean, even in Jesus' own ministry, I mean, Matthew 24 comes to mind. It serves as a a warning about the coming destruction of the temple and Jerusalem should God's people not turn to him. It's not exactly a rosy picture. And 40 years later, in 70 AD, Jerusalem was overthrown, and with it, the temple was destroyed, and it has never been rebuilt. That's yet another way that Jonah anticipates, anticipates Jesus as well. All right, verse 5 gives us the summary statement that the people of Nineveh believe God and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So like the Gentile sailors on Jonah's boat, the Gentiles of Nineveh, every social class from the greatest to the least, believe God and repented. Verses 6 through 8 narrow the action to the king of Nineveh. And the actions we find there of fasting, dressing in sackcloth, and as the king would do, sitting in ashes, indicates that they understood themselves to be dead in their sin. And by taking such a drastic form of fasting, so no food or drink for both humans and their domesticated mammals, you know, cattle, livestock, birds, indicates that they recognized that they had no other choice but to wait upon God's mercy something the king actually says in verses 8 and 9. Verse 6 is an interesting verse because it is the action of a king stepping down from his throne in subservience to Israel's God. As Peter Lightheart comments, when the king of Nineveh hears Jonah's warnings, he repents, and in a neat chiasm, that is a, a literary structure that goes A, B, then goes B, A, Sometimes it could be A, B, C, then C, B, A. Well, Jonah 3, 6 tells us that the king, A, rises from his throne, 
B, lays aside his royal robe, and kind of a B prime, covers himself with sackcloth, so replacing his royal robe with the clothing of death. And then A prime, he sits in ashes, not on a throne. An ashen seat is really an unthrone, as the king abdicates in deference to Israel's high king, Yahweh. Well, this action is similar to the actions of the sailors in chapter 1 who offered sacrifices and made vows in response to the calming of the storm. That is, they, they worshipped the true God, or like what Nebuchadnezzar said in response to Daniel's God-given ability to not only tell the king what he dreamed, but what it meant. Nebuchadnezzar says, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. Though Nebuchadnezzar's initial confession seemed to be either short-lived or kind of half-baked. The irony of this moment is that the action of the king of Nineveh was precisely the sort of thing Israel was supposed to do in response to the preaching of the prophets that God sent to her, but had, really, generation after generation, refused. In turn, God removed Israel's throne and sent her into exile. Verse 10 tells us that God saw what the people of Nineveh did and how they turned from their evil way. And the word saw is often evaluation language in the Bible, as in God judged their actions. He judged their heart. And in response, he turned from his fierce anger, which, again, is what I think he wanted to do and why he sent Jonah in the first place. It's like what Ezekiel 18 verse 23 says. This is God speaking. He says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? In the broad scheme of things, God never desires that his image bearers, no matter who they are, should perish. He does not take pleasure in destroying the Hitlers of the world any more than he does the petty criminals or serial gossipers. And so he desires that people like the Assyrians, even like the Assyrians, find life in him. But if we focus more narrowly on Israel and the story of redemption that's being worked out historically in the Bible, because Israel had refused to repent and in turn the Assyrians did repent, it effectively created a role reversal. So Israel, who was my people, by rejecting God, have become not my people. And in turn, God has made a people who are not my people, the Assyrians, into his people. As Deuteronomy 32, 21 promised Israel before ever entering, entering the promised land. He says, I know what's going to happen. I know what you're going to do. And this is what he says. He says, they, that is the people of God, have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. And this is the entire history of the northern kingdom of Israel from Jeroboam the first. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. So here we find by the end of chapter 3 that through the ministry of a Hebrew prophet speaking God's word, a people who were no people of God have become, from the greatest to the least of them, the people of God. As we will see next time, Jonah, representing Israel, 
will be provoked to anger by this foolish nation and God's kindness to them. More on that next week.